So um, I'm Scott, in case I haven't got to meet you. Um, one of the pastors here. I'm one of the guys to talk this morning. Um, let me pray briefly so that the Lord does good things with his word. And uh, we always know that God's word never returns to him void, but we don't always know his intention of his word for the day. And uh, my really prayer this morning is that God would use his word really, really um, for those of us that don't know him online watching or here that really the Lord would stir in your heart to see who he is, his character, his heart, what's true about you, what, what could be the relationship between you and him. Um, if you know him already, really that the Lord might use it to try to challenge your thinking. Um, there's always this, 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 this re- repeat phrase, and I was kind of tracking it this, um, this week. Actually, it's because of uh, our, our scripture soak we're doing, right? We did First, first Thessalonians this week, and we're doing another text this, this week. And I was, I was noticing themes between what we've been going through in Romans and what was in that First Thessalonians chapter. And one of those themes is this idea of wake, wake up. All right, we're always having this chance to do, we're always, as believers, we're always starting to like just kind of dole down and kind of snooze and go to sleep in our hearts. And so we need the Spirit of God to revive our hearts and refresh us. And so let me pray for that this morning. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, and we thank you so much for life and forgiveness and hope and security in Him. We thank you that your love for us is, is very, very strong. We don't need to ask you to love us. Um, you have stated strongly that you love us and that you are our father, that we are your adopted children, and that your heart beats vibrantly for us. And uh, you are far more into our welfare than we ever could be into our welfare. So, Father, we submit to uh, your design and your heart and your love for us, and we ask that you would help us by your spirit. You've, you've given to us in your joy to stir deeply in our hearts, Lord, as we listen to your word this morning. I pray that for all of us as we listen. I pray that for me as I would speak. Um, please stir our hearts so we might more deeply glorify you by taking joy in you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7 today. I would highly encourage you to get a copy of that in front of your eyeballs with your phone, loner Bible in the back, or your neighbor that you can lean over. Um, Romans, Romans 15, um, just being very, very quick, first half of Romans is all this details about who God is and who we are and the connection and the problem that went wrong in creation, how God fixed that through Jesus, and a lot, probably the most deep details in the New Testament of how it all works together, that's the first half of Romans. And the massive theme that comes over Romans chapter 1 into Rome, the end of Romans chapter 11 is God is merciful to us as Christians. Like, we are people to forever sit there and realize, okay, I'm a person who sits under the abounding mercies of God. That is the message of Romans 1 to 11. God's mercy is rich on us. And Romans chapter 12 on is if we have that mercy and if we've been treated so mercifully by God, therefore, how do we live? How do we think about things? How do we engage one another? There's all kinds of very specific and helpful instructions going along that way. But in chapter 14, it turns into like in church. If, 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 we are, if we are isolated spiritual orphans, not connected into God's church family, which is unhealthy for you, it's like being a goldfish on the desktop instead of in the fishbowl, okay? But if, you, if we are in fellowship, um, when we are in fellowship, particularly in, in a local church context, uh, a number of us have had a lot of experiences. On, uh, I used to work at a Christian college for years. A lot of us came from Cedarville, We've had experiences where we've had really tight, um, really d- tight demographic fellowship before, right? Where we're with people that are our own sa- a, a stage of life and our own 
uh, own types and own likes. But particularly as that broadens out and we are experiencing more of God's family, the full intergenerational, multi-gender fellowship of God's family, um, diversity really shows up. And one of the leading elements, regardless of whatever type of cultural diversity may be in a body, is spiritual age diversity. So I am 50 years old, and uh, I became a believer back when I was, before I was 10, which means I have been a believer, by God's grace, longer than most of you in this room because you weren't alive then. And, and, and the reason that happened is God in his sovereign grace made that way. He designed for me to be born earlier in the, 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 the history than you were, and then he visited me in his grace before he visited you in his grace. And there's a bunch of people he visited before me and before them, right? And so there's a sequence of God is always going out and finding his lost children. He's coming to them. He's exposing the gospel, showing them who he is and who they actually have always have been and how they can know him. And he shows that to them, and he wins their hearts over, and they want him now. And he, they rest in the work of Jesus. And, and, and in that moment, when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they are 100% forgiven and 100% righteous in the sight of God. In one moment of time, would you put your faith in that? You're saying, God, I don't want the independence anymore. I want dependence. I want, I want to be yours. I want to believe you. I want to trust you. In that moment, you are perfectly loved, perfectly forgiven, perfectly made righteous. And you are then a spiritual baby. And you grow more and more and more. Sorry, I'll do this. More and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Right? And you look more and more like him. And all these downs here are repentances where we fall and get up by God's grace and he convicts us of our sin. And so we're looking while we keep our skin bodies and we look the same way with the same personalities, we're looking more and more shaped like Jesus with unique giftedness that he gives us. And in that process, it can get a little bit mucky. It can get a little hard. And get hard for yourself, and it can get hard for the people that are around you. And so our passage today is all about the realities of that. Chapter 14 of Romans has no use for you unless you're a church person. It's just not even a point. Chapter 14, from verse 1 on to 15, 7, is a vast portion of welcome. So our first piece today is this. The gospel demands welcoming. If you remember, in 14.1, it says... Welcome people. The, the weaker brother welcomed them in. Why? Because God has welcomed them. Oh, this is a gospel identity. And then we finish off. She just read this for us. Thank you, Robin. At the end of verse 7, it says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So 14.1 ends in 15.7. It's all a passage about welcoming one another in the local church, even though we're very different, and we're different positions of our maturity in the Lord. And so what he says in 14.3 welcome them because God's welcomed them. He says in 17, uh, 15, 7, he says, welcome them because Christ has welcomed you. So there's this overhanging thing of like, okay, all the togetherness, let's get our heads screwed on straight. Let's recenter ourselves in this gospel identity. Who is God and who are we? He is the God who welcomes us, them and you. And since he's welcomed them and you, you therefore welcome them, right? It's that gospel thinking straight through into fellowship. What do you do with the relationship to the church? And particularly in 14 is, what do you do with the relationship to the church? And you got to be close to one another. Know this. This is, not, this is not distance knowledge. This is why we have missional communities within those, these DNA groups. What do you do when you have two people who genuinely, imperfectly, are trying to follow the Lord? 
But one person has known the Lord for some time longer than the other. Or one person has actually a better scriptural understanding of something than the other. But both people are authentically trying to follow the Lord. What do you do? The teaching of Romans 14 and 15 is you don't shove that person aside because they came to know Jesus 10 years later than you did. Or they happen to be growing up in a church that's janky and just never taught the scriptures or something like that. You don't shove them aside. He welcomed them. He welcomes you. Welcome them because you're on the same team. You are both people seeking to please the Lord. The debates in Romans chapter 14 are not debates about people trying to do as much as I can do within my Christian confines. The debates in Romans 14 are people honestly trying to follow Jesus. And some of them are maybe needlessly constrained in certain ways because of certain temptations or maybe because of certain understandings of Scripture they haven't come to, but they're honestly following the Lord with the best of their abilities. And God goes, don't you dare get in their way or despise them because they haven't had a chance to learn what you've learned. So the gospel demands a great welcoming. Don't separate. Even in your mind, don't despise them or judge them. Welcome them. Embrace them. And to do it for one reason, because God has welcomed them and God has welcomed you. So yesterday was Amanda Molesbury's wedding, and uh, towards the end of it, I was talking about Colossians 3 and the redefinition of love. We don't love one another based upon the performance of the person that we are trying to love or is loving us. If I love my daughter Madison, and I only love her as well because she's doing a good job of loving me, which is American love, let's be fair, fair enough. It's probably just human love. Like, yeah. Once you love me, then I'll love you. Once you prove yourself to be a good friend, then I'll be a good friend to you. But that's not Jesus has taught us to love. Did Jesus come to us and wait for you to get all shiny and cleany and nice and amazing? No, no, no. He came to us in our desecration, right? In the words of the Old Testament, he found us in our blood, right? Like, just, we didn't deserve it. He comes with grace and pours out love on us. And so God, in the same way, calls us here in these passages. We welcome one another out of grace not out of performance. Our second piece is found in verse 1. Our, our second point today is the truly, song, the truly strong seek the pleasures of God. The truly strong seek the pleasures of God. 15, 1 and 2 and 3 says this, and I'm going to go back and explain it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So let's go back and I want to just kind of flesh that out. We who are strong, so those are the ones who have the benefit of careful study or spiritual maturity. We who are strong have an obligation. So obligation, it's a word of obligation. Like it really is something we are obliged to, something Jesus has put before us. So in the gospel, if I have forfeited the supposed self-ownership of myself, and that's part of the not gospel news is you actually don't own yourself. Satan owns you. And that's really offensive when we, when we hear that for the first time. How dare you say I'm a slave? How dare you say I'm owned by Satan? How dare you say I'm darkness? And, and Jesus says, actually, you're darkness, you're owned by Satan, you're a slave, and you're dead. And that really hacked off half the crowd, right? But that's part of the gospel is we own up to those things. Well, you're right, these are my problems, and I don't want that anymore. I want to belong to Jesus. I want Jesus as my king. Jesus is the true king, and I want him. So whatever the new king wants, that is our obligation, and it's not sad to be, to be obliged to Jesus, right? It's really good. We need a king. 
You're you're not, we're not designed to be independent. We're not designed to be autonomous. We are designed as dependent creatures. We will always be sons and daughters of the King, dependent on Him. In heaven, when, when all the sin is all gone and off of the whole place, and we're in perfection, we'll be utterly dependent upon Jesus, even for light, because Jesus Himself is the light of heaven. Like, dependency never goes away. Dependency is just glorious in the end. So, you have an obligation, Christian, you really do, to bear, to bear. So that's to share the load of the younger and less powerful Christian. So you have an obligation to bear with the failings. Now, failings there sounds kind of like they botched it, but the, the word there is probably more fairly uh, translated as limitations. That probably captures it. It's, it's uh, more of a passive thing. They just are not able to. They're not strong enough yet. They're just baby believers. It's like going on a hike with your your little nephew is two years old. You don't turn on scold them like, pick it up. You know, like, like catch up the front line. They're only two. They can only walk so fast. It's not, that's not a failing. That's a limitation. So to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Let me just talk about the word pleasing for a second. So pleasing can be confusing if you're reading fast and not really settling down. Bless you. And thinking about all that's being said in the scriptures of pleasing, okay? Because God tells us at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's a good thing. It's not a mockery. God says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then we go on and hear Paul say, no longer do I please man. But then we turn the corner, we get in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes, so I seek to please everyone, right? And then in this passage here, we don't please ourselves, and but we please other people. So and an initial quick reading of the concept of pleasing can be confusing. But let me try to settle it this way here. There is visceral, immediate pleasures of flesh that we find as pleasings in the Bible. And then we find utter pleasures, real pleasures, eternal pleasures, pleasures that may be th- realized to some degree on earth here and then forever in heaven. Those are the sweet pleasures. And they're given out by the Lord. And God says, hey, you follow me, and I will fill you with those pleasures. I'll fill you with them. Uh, yesterday at the wedding, um, uh, we were in a wedding. There's others of you guys are other weddings. Weddings are these sweet moments of pleasure when they're good ones, right? We're like the, the bringing on all this stuff, of all these hearts and all this effort and love and discipleship and mentorship and, and community. It's all coming down, and the bride is adorned like Jesus coming down here, and the bridegroom is waiting for her to come, like straight out of Revelation 20 and 21. It's beautiful stuff. It's like one of the sweetest ever. It is a pleasure, really a pleasure, and it's good. So when you come to scriptures, pleasures and pleasing is not bad. But when people are the ultimate ones to be pleased, that is bad. And number two, when we're seeking our own pleasures in our own ways, that would be bad. But God himself offers us vast and eternal pleasures by his ways, through his recipes, through his designs, and he promises it to be there. And what's interesting, just kind of watch it from the beginning of this passage to the end, is that there's a knitting of the true pleasures of God's people and the true glory of God in this passage. God is glorified as we are truly pleased in the ultimate things, which is Him. And we help each other be, find our pleasures in Him, to truly glow in those pleasures. So there's a knitting of the pleasures, the true pleasures of us, and the glorification of God. So in 15.2, let us please His neighbor for His good. And in 15.1, and not to please ourselves. 
this is not something that's new to us, but maybe some of the words are new. Seek the pleasure of your neighbor here. So I think neighbor here is a reference to the, the other believers, right? The reason I say that is because the last word in this, this, uh, this, this passage here is we build one another up to build him up, which is talking about that same language out of the last chapter where as believers we are being built up together into a temple for the Lord, right? So it's that same word, to house build them up. So what does it mean to let, us, uh, let each of us please his neighbor for his good? Key phrase, for his good. Throw in a her in there, it's just default masculine gender there. For his good. So the call here is not to become a person of misery, not seek the pleasure, speak of it. It's not called a person of misery. It's a place of prioritization. You're no longer walking about thinking about number one. We now think about a new number one, Christ and the people he's given us. And we seek their pleasure. But that doesn't mean like, just do what makes them happy. Just affirm whatever nonsense they're saying all the time. Just, uh, oh, you want me to rob a store with you? Sure, I'll go rob a store with you. That makes you pleasure. It brings you pleasure. Jesus said make you happy. No, no, no. Maybe the far, far more realistic things. Uh, there are a thousand different things that our kids think would make them happy. And God's called us to raise them in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, not to affirm all of their desires all the time, right? So we say no. And we say yes, and we say you must, and we discipline those kind of things because that's actually for their good. That's the description of this. Please them, seek their pleasures in that which is actually good. How do we know what's actually good? We know who Jesus is. So this younger believer in this passage, when we engage them, and you have them in your life, right? Unless you just came to know Jesus, and you might be on like the, the end of the train right now. If you are, we're really thankful you're on the end of the train. We'd love to just do this for you. And then we're going to help you do this to the next person put on the train of faith. But we seek those people and we figure out what would truly bring them true pleasure and true joy for their good, not for the gratification of their flesh, but really what would be good for them. And a lot of times that is kind words. Sometimes that's food. Sometimes that's correcting their words in a way. Sometimes it's just letting it go. I was talking with a brother this week. Oh, it's Andrew. He's my brother. Um... And we were talking about, um, I was in about four conversations this week where people were saying wrong things. Wrong word Christians, wrong words came out of the mouth at the time. I know them, I love them. It wasn't the moment to go, well, now, that word right there is wrong. Right, that's inaccurate, or that's true. It wasn't, it wasn't the moment. Because I think at the moment in time, God was helping me seek their best and their good. And right then, I felt led by the Lord to just listen and not say a word, not to correct. And then there's other been times this week where I'm interacting with people or people have been interacting with me where the Spirit of God has moved us to bring some challenge and some correction to those things. Why? Because we're seeking each other's ultimate good. And when they're doing it to me, they're actually seeking my pleasure, my delight. Christ is not calling us into a life of misery. He's calling us into a life of higher and truer and best delight. Um, yeah. I have an analogy. I can't. I have a story, but I can't tell you. Sorry, just I just realized it was inappropriate to tell the story. So I've I've seen it just this week. I've seen it this week. I've seen a couple of times where God, over a period of time, has so invested in people that these people are noticeably happy, pleasure-filled people because they've been sitting at the feet of Jesus in comparison to the other people who've been seeking immediate pleasures. Light and darkness. I've seen it a couple times this week. And it was stunning. Like it was, it was like, uh, you know, for me in my walk with Jesus, 
like God caught me, caught me, like brought it out. I could see it, and it, and it stirred my heart. It wasn't, it was cool, you know, we talked about the difference between like noticing something and your heart, it capturing your heart. For me, it's been a couple times this week where the Lord has used that actually to capture my heart. Not just one person, but groups of Christians who have helped each other find true delights in Jesus. And that true delight is like deeply visible, even across the room, to see the joy and stability and strength sometimes there that comes from this different type of pleasure. Comes a different type of pleasure than just simply always doing what you want to do. So we do seek each other's pleasure. Because that's what the gospel does. It brings us to uh, true pleasures that we don't have in our natural flesh. Not the visceral, immediate ones, but the deeper, longer ones. And those are the ones that are truly for their good. They align them with Christ. They push them towards Christ. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Again, what does it mean for me to love Kevin Heller? It means not just simply just to always do the nicest things or the funnest things for him, but like, Father, what what does he need? Spirit of God, I don't know what to pray for for Kevin. So what does he need? How can I help build him up? Is it an encouraging word? Is it a note? Is it babysitting their kids while they go on a date night? Is it taking him golfing? Is it giving him cash? I don't know. What is it? What, what do you want me to do for him? And as the Spirit of God would lead us in accordance with his word. So how and why do you do that? Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as is written in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Where Christ chose, rather than his own immediate pleasures, he, he chose to please God and stand with God as God was mocked and was rejected by his people. We've seen it time and time again. This idea of us laying our lives down, forgetting ourselves, no longer seeking our immediate pleasures, because his, as you forsake your immediate pleasures, God is going to give you your deeper and truer pleasures. Pleasure is on the docket, folks. It's coming. It's going to be immediate and cheap and small, or it's going to be eternal and large and weighty, and it's probably weighted for. And we've seen Christ talk about this time and time again, and we've seen Jesus do it, and we saw him set aside his immediate pleasures for our pleasures. Um, we, saw, we, saw, we saw Paul say this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul says, For the believer and the non-believer, he goes, I do it all the time. You've seen me do it. Like I'm not trying to seek my immediate gratification, my advantage in these words here. Because instead, I'm laying myself out. I'm trying to seek the pleasing of the people around me, not their visceral, immediate desires, but their best. What do they most need? How will the Spirit of God guide me into doing the best thing for them as I seek Him? And then we saw Jesus do it all over the place and talk about us being servants. He says, greatest in my kingdom are those the servants of all. He says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In Philippians 2, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of the Lord. He says in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the idea of us serving and pleasing people is wrapped into our new gospel identity. This is who God has left us here for. So the day that Aaron came to know Jesus, he wasn't mysteriously sucked off the planet and put into heaven. God left Aaron here has gifted him and put him in the body 
and he is here to have great effect. It's this time of his existence where God has dedicated him for the advance of God's mission, both inside the church and outside the church. And as that, he and I and you, if you know Jesus, we are servants. And we are servants first to God, and then we are servants second to each other in the church, and third, we are servants to this world that they might know him. So like we saw Christ do to the Father and to do to all of us as he served us all and sought our good, so we are to seek the true pleasures and the good of our brothers and sisters. Our third piece, scriptures are the fuel for certainty. Scriptures are the fuel for certainty. So I want to hop to the last word of verse 4. Um, it says that we might have hope. Or if you have an NIV, it might be a little different. So we might have hope. If you're new to our services here, and particularly the book of Romans, when you see the word hope in the scriptures, I think it's really tricky because our modern definition of hope is really almost the exact opposite of what biblical hope is. So just start getting this in your head. Our modern definition of hope is really negative. It's an unlikely wish or desire, a desire with very low probability, nearly vain want, and unlikely dream. Well, I sure hope that my team wins this year. That means it's not like what's going to happen. Um, I sure hope I get a million bucks. I sure hope we won't die. I sure hope. So hope is like a very, very low likeliness in American English, right? So therefore, every time you see hope in the scriptures, um, check yourself. It's not what you're thinking. Hope in the scriptures is the exact opposite. It's this certain expectation. It is sold. It's a certain expectation. It's a complete dependence on something not yet in hand. Like, it is, it is a rope latched around something you can't see, like, and I'm putting all my weight in it. It is certainty. So, so when you see hope, New Testament particularly, Old Testament, think certainty. Don't think uncertainty, all right? That's not a, that's not a Bible problem. That's an American English problem. So let's go in, 14, in verse 4. And I'm going to basically always replace the word hope with certainty just for our sakes, right? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have certainty. Read it again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have certainty. So this is in particular um, written about Old Testament scriptures, okay? But then expands to all of the scriptures. We love the Old Testament. We respect the Old Testament. But the New Testament becomes our marching orders. And he says that if we want the certainty, and God wants us to have certainty, he doesn't want us to live in uncertainty, and we really need that certainty. Why? Because death happens around us. Anxiety happens around us. Danger happens around us. We have a lifespan hooked to all of us and all of our kids in this room. Like Uncertainty is there abounding. God wants us to actually have his certainty. So certainty is important. And if you're going to have the certainty, you've got to have it from the fuel God gives for certainty, which, for the observant reader, can be found in that verse. Uh, you might not subtly notice these things, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have the certainty. So if you want the certainty, you have to have the fuel for the certainty, which comes from the scriptures, and the scriptures are loaded with the fuel for endurance and for encouragement. So if you're not fueling off the text, that's why we're doing the scripture soak this summer. That's why we do Bible studies in the DNA. That's why we preach the text on Sunday mornings. Out of the text comes the fuel you need to endure and you need for encouragement. So if you're struggling with certainty, I would say the first thing to do is like, hey, have you checked 
the flow in of the scriptures into you? Like, are you only coming and listening on a Sunday? Um, what's your devotional life look like? What are you listening to? Are you inbounding the scriptures? Are you memorizing the scriptures so you might actually have the fuel for endurance to last at the end and encouragement and vibrancy in the middle of it? Do you fuel yourselves off the scriptures? Because if you're not living in certainty, there's a great chance, not all the time, but there's a great chance it's a fuel problem. The hoses of encouragement and endurancement are, are just shut off. And you're just out of gas. You're just malnourished. And so therefore, your certainty is going down and down because you are nourishing on something. And it's probably social media, some news channel, or some of those other kind of things. And that's nourishing your heart. And let me just tell you, my friends, that's not going to bring you certainty. That's going to feed a different thing in our hearts. So we go to the scriptures to find the fuel for endurance and for the encouragement that we need. Our ability to confidently follow Christ is fueled by the endurance and encouragement provided by God in the scriptures. And our final piece is this. The end, the end is glory. The end goal is not simply our certainty, but actually that certainty then brings us to something even higher. Look at, 50, uh, look at five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement, so you might have seen those words before, notice because they're in the verse before, right? So it's connecting these two things here. The scriptures full of fuel for endurance and encouragement. Here, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, literally mindset with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. <coughs> so I think there's a number of things that are kind of are interesting to me. It's interesting in this passage how often Jesus is referred to and us taking our cues based upon what we've seen Jesus do, right? We welcome because he welcomed them. We welcome them because he welcomed us. It says that before, in the first part here, we seek others' pleasures because we saw Jesus do that. He laid aside his own pleasures and took the, took the, the mockings of God and stood with him instead. And here again, there is this thing that says, in accordance with Christ. All the time, we as Christians, we're always looking back, not only to what he's done, but to him as an example. I know it's cheesy. And it's on half of, half of some, like, wrist thing you own back in your, your drawer somewhere. But what would Jesus do really is a great question. What would the Jesus do of the scriptures is a great question. And particularly, what would Jesus do for us that know Jesus and have Jesus has done his work on us? It's a fantastic, helpful thing. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So what he's doing here is that through as the scriptures get their endurance and encouragement from its author because God wrote the scriptures. So note the connection there because I, I know your, your philosophy per instructor at college says something differently, but this is the claim of scriptures. God wrote the scriptures. The God of endurance and encouragement wrote the scriptures and put endurance and encouragement fuel in there. They are sourced in him, and he's the one that then uses those things to blow them up, set them on fire in our hearts, and do things with us. God gives us this shared mindset or the shared perspective with one another. In, in five, it says harmony. Um, sounds kind of like musical. It's not so much musical. It's like this one shared mindset. So through the scriptures that we read, God gives us one mindset. It's not just simply a grid, but it's a hope. It's a focus that it we share together underneath him. And that focus is like Christ. It says one in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ. So just like Christ had it, we now think in his ways. And it brings us together in verse 6 for this unique thing. 
that together you may with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the end of it is literally with one mouth we may glorify God. One articulated message that adorns and sets apart and commends and testifies to the immense superiority and delightfulness of God. That's the end of it. We, our hearts, deeply pleased in the Lord, experiencing pleasures, having pleasures stored for us in heaven, us helping each other go that way. And what happens at the end of this thing here is God makes a bride, one bride with one mouth, who really loves and advances one another, and we're building each other up into this thing. And this thing is a bride with one mouth that adorns, that proclaims, and looks, and points to the true groom, the true God of heaven, that is spotless and magnificent and wonderful because we have found our good in him. If we found our good in him. If we haven't found our good in him, we don't have the one mind, and therefore we're not going to have the one mouth. And our mouth and our minds will be dedicated to other things. Our minds will be set on things of the world, uh, just normal good things of the world. And then our mouths will be dedicated towards that. Our mouths will be dedicated towards filling our mouths. Our mouths will be dedicated towards... Um, orchestrating life in a way that we get by and that we have immediate pleasures, but there's a better use for your mouth. The better use for your mouth is your mouth being used with all the rest of our mouths, that we together as one body proclaim with one voice um, the superiority and the immenseness of who God is. That's what your mouth is made for. And as worshipers, your mouth has to be filled as well. So there's no spot for us as Christians going like, well, I'm going to let someone else talk. I'm never just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to live ultra cleany over here in tithe or something like that. But no, no, you, he made you, he gave you a mouth. And it's together one mouth. That's why we sing these songs to him. We sing these songs with like join lungs and hearts using not only the word choices, but the whole instrumentation of our body. Chloe and I were taking a trip this week and we were talking about the difference between saying good things about God and singing the things about God. When you're singing it, you're using, not only I'm not saying the words, but I'm using I'm using, literally using all of me to s- proclaim it and adorn it, to make it look as good as possible. A, for him, B, for each other, C, for the world around us. So we welcome each other because God has welcomed us and them. And it's his pleasure. He's designed for us each to seek the true and lasting and full pleasure of each of his children he places in our lives. And we together with one well-scripturally-fueled mind joyfully proclaim continually that God is truly astounding. So that's our one mind. It's our one voice. But this doesn't make sense. The church doesn't make sense. Right, so this whole text, it's really meaningful. It's very instructive for our mindsets. That, that deep like togetherness, that deep embracing of one another. I don't care if you're old or you're young or whatever you happen to be. You matter. God has welcomed you. God's welcomed me. Because he's welcomed us let us invest ourselves. Let us, let us think about each other, not in terms of how much that person feels welcoming to me or loving me, but God has called you to set your heart aside, set your pleasures aside, and go after people. And do your best for them and help them develop and grow in the Lord. And you know what you're going to find? You are going to find your pleasures. Remember, because you are setting your pleasures aside so you can help other people achieve their pleasures that are good. Well, that's the very same thing you're achieving. As you follow Christ and seek to advance one another, you will be finding your truest and deepest pleasures. And when you are finding your two truest and deepest pleasures and finding it with others, you're finding the same. God 
is glorified with people of one heart and one voice because we do talk about it and we do bring the attention to it. So it's an amazing passage. I think it's pretty dang fantastic. Uh, 14 starts off, then it goes deep in these details of like, don't shun people and this kind of stuff. And it ends the end, like just this, this, this togetherness of like how our hearts are designed for a new pleasure, a new fuller pleasure. And he's left us here so we can help each other advance in that. And as we do that, he creates this new one mind, this new one voice that is a beautiful thing because there is no God like him. There is no God. He is incomparably glorious. There is no other God like him that is utterly great and no one withstands his power. There is no other God like him that is utterly good and flawless in all that he is. And there is no other God like him that is absolutely full of gracious love to all of his children, everyone who calls upon him. What more could we want? So, brothers and sisters, help me look to Jesus. Let me help you look to Jesus. But it's going to be done together, and it's probably not going to, it's only being done so much as we sit very close in our perforated chairs. Like, this is offline. These are coffees. These are steak dinners in each other's backyards. Well, that's a good guy. Um, these are golf matches. These are all kinds of things. And so that's what we do family week. Family month is a time for us to really pursue this off-grid and really, let's learn, e- let's learn each other. Learn some brothers and sisters you've never known before. See who they are. See how God might bless them through you today. At this time, we're going to switch, uh, finish out by responding in a couple things, both in song and we're going to respond in communion. So if you know Jesus, or like literally right now, you yield your heart to Jesus and say, God, I'm in. I trust the work of Jesus. Um, take communion with us in the back. If you don't know him, take a pass. But we'll have four circles in the back with two songs. And just take some time during one of those songs to go back there and take communion in the middle. In the communion, we're remembering this. We're broken people. We needed a substitute. And Jesus sent, God sent Jesus to be the substitute. And he shed his blood to save us. And so therefore, we are eternally secure. Let's pray. So Father, I, I fear that I've um, said a lot at a very high rate of speed. And um, I just pray that you would take your words and stir in us life. Um, let the words not fade. Uh, let us be challenged and uh, enlightened where we need to be challenged and enlightened individually. I pray that for us together, Father, that you would stir in us so that we really would have this great and amazing one mind and one voice. Father, we love you. We are so thankful that you have brought grace and love to us. Please be glorified and honored, Lord, in our songs today as we celebrate communion and sing these songs of praise to you. Amen.